30 minutes of exercise most days of the week, eight hours of sleep a night, some kind of daily stress relief or social connection, and uh, a mostly plant-based moderate diet is, is going to do more for them than any medication I could ever prescribe in, in the world. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore the world of primary care by featuring discussions with a variety of healthcare providers. And now, the host of the show, Dr. Ross Tannock. Hey friends, sorry I'm late. Didn't get an episode out to you in the month of September. Yikes, I'm already getting off schedule early on in residency. But just got done recording this episode with Dr. Alex McDonald early in October. And I have another guest lined up for later this month. So it looks like I'll be able to get an episode out later on this month as the official October episode. Meaning that this episode you are hearing is actually the September episode a few days late. Give the people what they want, I hear you all clamor, and what they want is the September PCP episode in their podcast feed. So here we go. First, a word from our sponsor and a fitting sponsor for this episode. I am proud to welcome Con Cushion. Are you tired from running from the law? Well, lay your head gently down on ConCushion, the only pillow made specifically for people who are at large and on the lamb. Save your head from the coup and, wait for it, counter coup by placing the ConCushion right underneath your head just before it hits the floor. And now they are introducing the long-awaited couch cushion Cushion. So go to concushion.com and put in the code PCP to get a really nice deal that I just can't specify the details of for fear of legal action against me and the entire production team here at the PCP. Available while supplies last. That's concushion.com. Promo code PCP. Okay, let's get to the episode. Dr. Alex McDonald and myself had limited time to chop it up about family medicine, but we covered a lot of ground. He talks about overcoming a learning disability, also spending four years as a professional triathlete after medical school and before residency, which sounds nuts and I love it. He also talks about sports med, fellowship training, lifestyle medicine, and how to individualize it to each patient. Also talked about being involved with a big healthcare system and how it allows him personally to focus on preventive medicine and keeping people out of the hospital, focusing on their health and wellness and well-being. We also talk about advocacy and leadership in family medicine and medicine in general. And he's got all sorts of great things to say, so let's hear from him. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alex McDonald. So 
so I'm originally from Vermont. Um, I, I grew up there, went to a small undergraduate school up there. I was always interested in medicine. Uh, not always. I was I was interested in medicine kind of from afar, but didn't think I was smart enough to go to medical school, quite frankly. Uh, I'm actually dyslexic, and I had a, a challenging time in school for the first, you know, several, several years. Um, uh, but then I went, I was a lifeguard in high school, and actually I liked the, the CPR and the medicine and the first aid more than, like, the swimming and the actual lifeguarding. Um, and so as a result, I started get, doing more work in medicine and then did my prerequisites in undergraduate and then ended up going to medical school at the University of Vermont. Um, and then... I took a little bit of a detour at that point in, in, in medical in medical school I actually discovered the sport of triathlon and started racing um, and doing triathlon kind of for fun and stress relief during medical school and then from there I actually had a lot more success and took a break between medical school and residency and raced professionally for about four years um, then I got hit by a truck and broke both my legs uh, and became a patient suddenly and that reaffirmed my interest and my desire really to, to, to be a physician, to be a sports medicine physician in particular, to help prevent injuries and keep people healthy. Um, and so my wife was a was a resident uh, at that point in North Carolina uh, when I was racing. And then I went back and did my internship um, there in North Carolina at Duke University and then came out to Kaiser Permanente here in Southern California to do my family medicine residency and my sports medicine fellowship. And then from there, just loved it and loved working in the system and, and, and the people and the relationships that I had built with patients and ended up staying. And I've been here for almost 10 years now. So that's that's the short version. I can go into much more detail. If you need well, the don't don't uh, don't give me some bait because I'll I'll bite at it for uh, talking about the uh, uh, professional triathlete career. Can we just get a little bit of a sample of what that was like? You you uh, did that for four years in between medical school and residency. Correct. Yeah. So uh, you know most people as as the listeners from this podcast know you go, you'd usually take your break between undergraduate and medical school. Um, but I went straight from undergraduate right into medical school um, and didn't have that break at all. And then I, when I was doing, when I was racing kind of initially just for fun in stress relief during medical school, I, I had a lot of success. And so I was like, look, I'm only young once. I want to try and really push this and push my body and my mind, both me mentally and physically as far as I could go for, um, you know, for a period of time. And, and four years was kind of that, that break point I envisioned in my brain anyway. Um, so I, I did mostly, I did um, mostly full distance Ironman and half Ironman and raced all over the world, primarily North America. Um, and it was a great experience. And um, let me tell you, no, no one goes into the sport of triathlon to make money. Let me just put it that way. So it was actually <laughs> probably the it. worst financial decision I ever made in my <laughs> life. Uh, but my, my partner is amazing and she was supportive of, of that effort. And she was a, a, a resident and a, a fellow at that time as well. So it kind of worked out with that, that phase of life that we were in. Um, it really gave me great insight into what it takes to, to, to both physically and mentally to, to perform at that level. And then also when I got injured, how it means to be a patient. And I think that really helps flavor my view of every single patient I see, whether it's a sports medicine patient or not. And so that experience was extremely valuable and I think brings a lot of uh, 
understanding and, and relationship building and trust building to what I do in family and sports medicine. And that's, I mean, that's what family medicine and primary care is all about. It's about longitudinal relationships and building that trust over time uh, and coming with some real world experience and some authenticity um, has only, uh, uh, you know, benefited me personally and professionally and hopefully my patients as well, but you're going to have to ask them uh, <laughs> if it's true or not. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll maybe get one on the podcast sometime and uh, ask them how you, how you're doing. But uh, for now, let's talk about the sports med uh, fellowship training. So you uh, took off that four years off to do uh, um, professional triathlons. Then you went to family med residency or internship and then residency. And what, uh, what was the sports med fellowship like? Was there, uh, can you compare it to other sports med fellowships? Was there a focus? Was there um, something that you were particularly trying to get out of it? Um, I, I ask because I know that some people will go to um, a sports med fellowship where it's MSK ultrasound heavy or one that is going to be more wilderness based or one more that's going to be more um, set you up to be a team doctor versus one that's going to set you up more to do what I believe it is you, you're doing, which is um, sports med within the primary care setting. So can you kind of talk about your experience there? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, you're absolutely right. There's so many different sort of flavors to the fellowship and there's more and more sports medicines uh, fellowships popping up all around the country these days, um, which sort of speaks to that need of primary care sports medicine. You know, someone who has that primary care hat and that primary care understanding, but also, you know, it doesn't have this, the super specialized training of an orthopedic surgeon also. Um, most, I think like 30% of visits to the primary care physician is for something musculoskeletal related. Yeah. And so I really wanted to have a better and a broader understanding of just biomechanics and musculoskeletal medicine. So one, I could be a better primary care doctor, um, but also having that extra year of training so that I could do, go out and be the team physician. I serve as a team physician for a local division two school here, as well as a high school. Um, so, so my fellowship was very, very clinical based. Um, you know, some, some programs are more research heavy. Mine was very high volume, uh, lots of patients, lots of clinical experience. Um, my program was actually unique because there's actually three sports fellows per year. Now, most programs have one, maybe two, but the fact we had three, we had very, very high patient volumes and we all wouldn't see every single patient. But if someone comes in, you know, if one of my co-fellows saw some weird kind of esoteric musculoskeletal injury, we all could learn from that. Uh, we sort of get the amygdala involved in our learning with uh, seeing an actual patient versus just sort of reading about it in a, in a textbook. So that's sure. what I love best about my my fellowship and furthermore it's one of the oldest sports primary care sports fellowships in the country and so uh very very well established very well respected um and it was really truly a sports medicine uh fellowship it wasn't a chronic musculoskeletal uh, uh fellowship uh, which you know obviously we have plenty of you know joint injections and and uh chronic musculoskeletal issues kind of temporizing measures before somebody needs surgery or or if they're you know, not, not healthy enough to have surgery. Um, but it's truly focusing on, on athletes, which I think is very, uh, it's it becoming harder to find in sports fellowships these days as well, too. Yeah. So how, uh, can you kind of paint a picture of how your practice is set up kind of, uh, with regards to your sports medicine training? I mean, you, you just kind of mentioned that so much of, uh, a, uh, patients complaints are in primary care are musculoskeletal and I think the majority of that is usually regarding back pain in some way uh, 
Um, and, you know, I've always kind of thought of that as like kind of a, a trivia fact that, oh, the most common, uh, uh, you know, complaint going to a primary care physician is back pain. But in, in your world, it's not a trivia. That's actually a really practical uh, piece of knowledge. And, uh, and so how does, it, how does it shape up for you in terms of what are you treating? Are you doing primary care, um, full spectrum primary care, or are you getting mostly your colleagues' uh, sports med uh, stuff that kind of gets uh, shift toward, uh, shifted towards you? Yeah, so my I have a, a, a very large variety. I have a full full spectrum of family medicine that I practice right now. So I'd say probably about 30% of maybe 40% of my time is in my primary care clinic where I see everyone from, you know, newborn babies all the way to grandmas and grandpas. Um, about 30% of my time is my sports medicine clinics, which are sometimes my own patients, uh, you know, oftentimes patients referred from, from colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, and then about, uh, what is that? Maybe about, maybe another 10, 15% of my time is, is, uh, dedicated towards teaching. I'm one of the faculty members for our residency program, um, teaching the sports medicine fellows and the residents as well. And then the last, you know, odd percentage is, is in the hospital. I work in the hospital, um, uh, several times per, per year rounding on the inpatient teams as well too. So I have this, this great variety that I, I really love actually in my practice. And I love about family medicine is we can do so many different things and we can help in so many different aspects within the healthcare system. And I really try to practice what I preach. Um, when it comes to my, my, my sports medicine clinic specifically, um, it's a, it's a huge variety. I mean, I see everybody from, you know, seven, seven, eight year olds or tend to be the youngest, although those are, those are not super common up to, you know, 80 year olds, you know, doing, doing knee injections who sort of need, need a knee replacement, but they don't want to get a knee replacement. And so they just keep, keep seeing, seeing me for knee injections. Um, I always tell people that, you know, one of the, one of the, 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 the biggest things that I'm going to do as a sports medicine physician is I'm not just going to look at the joint where you're having pain or the aspect where you have pain, but I'm going to look at sort of the whole kinetic chain, both up and down. Um, and kind of usually when, when someone comes in with a musculoskeletal injury, it's kind of the, the tip of the iceberg and we have to go much, much deeper to try to find that true cause. Um, you know, I'll be honest, most people are not trained very well in musculoskeletal medicine through mm -hmm. no fault of their own. There's, there happens to be a lot to learn about the human body in, in medicine right. and throwing, you know, NSAIDs and, you know, pain medications at people for musculoskeletal injuries is the last thing I do. Actually, I always joke that, uh, anytime someone comes to see my, me in my office, I usually send them home with a book of stretches and rehab and strengthening exercises as well. Um, in addition to, um, you know, procedures and injections and dry needling, um, and PRP injections and things like that to help facilitate and augment that, that process. Um, a, a lot of, we, we joke, most of sports medicine is, is not, is diagnosing the right problem and kind of the, the root cause of that problem sometimes well, as well as then helping the patient do the work to get themselves better better we don't we don't treat we don't heal them they heal themselves we just merely give them the tools and the resources to do that whether that be home physical therapy versus uh, formal physical therapy versus any kind of injections or other modalities we do we do in clinic as well too so i'm a i'm a big believer when it comes to either sports medicine or my primary care population that my job is to help you help yourself ultimately. Um, and, and that's just a bit of my, my philosophy. I always tell people, I, I'm here to give you, uh, 
advice, recommendations, but ultimately it's up to you to do the hard work to, to get better, to treat yourself. Yeah. I love that. I love that when it, uh, you know, pertains to, um, pain in the body and injuries. Um, I think it also kind of relates to another topic I w we wanted to hit on, which is lifestyle medicine. So maybe we can kind of jump to that and, and circle back to, uh, talking about other things that we wanted to talk about. With lifestyle medicine, I, I, I know you're a, a big proponent of um, practicing it, and you mentioned just practicing what you preach and um, and kind of setting the patient up to do a lot of the work themselves, to do the healing themselves. How does that kind of relate to the way you practice preventive medicine, lifestyle medicine, uh, whether preventive or not? Um, and can you talk a little bit about how that plays into your practice or maybe just primary care in general? Sure. Um, my, so I kind of came to this from a, from a physical activity point of view during my sports fellowships, I had a great mentor, uh, named Bob Salas, who did a lot of work with the American college of sports medicine and really launched the exercises medicine initiative, um, really highlighting the value of physical activity to not only treat, but reverse so many diseases. And when I was exposed to this, I, I was kind of, my mind was sort of blown, right? We, we exist in this system where, you know, the the financial incentive, be it for patients or physicians or healthcare systems, is to prescribe things rather than than prevent things. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody comes to my office with an injury or a medical mm -hmm. condition, it's I don't want to say it's too late, but but that is a missed opportunity where if we could have treated that upstream and prevented that. So that's kind of where my, my I came to from lifestyle medicine, from that physical activity point of view. Um, and then from there, I quickly ex uh, discovered this whole world of of nutrition um, and and social connection and exercise and sleep um, and, and you know, I put vaccines in, in that preventative medicine bucket oh, too, although sure. that's a little bit separate from lifestyle. Um, and so got involved with the American College uh, of Lifestyle Medicine as well. The, I always tell people, anytime, anytime I meet a new patient, I kind of give them a little bit, a little bit about who I am and my philosophy. And I tell them, you know, you know, uh, uh, 30 minutes of exercise most days of the week, eight hours of sleep a night, some kind of daily stress relief or social connection and uh, a mostly plant-based moderate diet is is going to do more for them than any medication I could ever prescribe in, in the world. Um, and I'm always going to reach for those things as sort of the foundation of any treatment plan we have, because I, I challenge anyone to find a a common <laughs> uh, primary care condition, which cannot be at least partially treated with diet, sleep, exercise, or stress relief. Um, and so I think that is really my my goal as as a primary care physician as a family physician my job is to keep people healthy and prevent injury or reverse illness um and and lifestyle medicine is just kind of a kind of a no-brainer um if we can prevent something upstream before it becomes an avalanche or a flood or, or whatnot um it, it's so much easier too and that's what i'm i'm constantly telling people that um and so far no one's no one's stormed out of my office and been like no i don't like that i want medication you know so um but but right. uh well yeah sure i think i think there i have a self-selecting patient population too at some point as well that's probably true and you know i'm sure that uh they walk in and and see uh you and get your charming uh little speech there about exercises medicine and of course it's, it sounds great it sounds inspiring and and it's easy to be motivated up front, but it's harder to actually enact 
these things on a day-to-day basis and make them habits, especially in busy people's lives. Um, and especially when, like you kind of mentioned, it's too late, meaning it's maybe not too late to start things, but the you're already a little bit down the road of chronic disease. Um, so my question there is kind of how do you how do you uh, reel someone back in, I guess, when they're already you know, overweight and diabetic and hypertensive and, uh, you know, whatever other uh, chronic diseases you can uh, throw in that bucket. Um, how, how do you uh, help them from that standpoint when they're already uh, kind of down the road of chronic disease? Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, my, my primary care and my family medicine hat um, is so important because it's all about it's all about longitudinal. We're not going to longitudinal relationships and trust building over time. We're not going to reverse somebody's blood pressure or diabetes in one visit. We're going to plant the seed, and then we're going to follow up, and then we're going to reevaluate, and then we're going to come up with a plan, and then we're going to plant another seed, and then we're going to reevaluate. And it's a, over time. I, I think you know part of part of the challenge here is until recently, we really couldn't, physicians were not incentivized to do this work, to counsel somebody is so much harder than it is to simply prescribe a pill. Mm-hmm. Um, and until recently, when when the, the new, um, uh, some of the new updated uh, coding guidelines came out, we couldn't really bill for that time because it's a lot harder. And so we're making some, strain, some, some improvements there to sort of incentivize physicians to do this work. Because let's be honest, we're not trained to do this work either too. We sort of have to stumble upon it uh, ourselves over time. So one thing that I'm always preaching to my residents and to my to medical students who are rotating through with me is, is look, you, you see that patient, you know, for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe four times a year. Um, there are in their own head, you know, 24, seven, 365 days a year, they're seeing their family every day, but that moment you see them, they're going to remember that too, because it's a very unique, we, we have hundreds and thousands of patients we see as physicians, but if we, you never know when that suggestion is going to land or, or, you know, I've had patients come back to me years later, sometimes having lost, you know, 50 pounds or having, you know, completely reversed or mostly reversed their diabetes. And that's all just diet control. Um, so you never know when that comment is going to land or when that comment is going to resonate with somebody too. And so you have to try every single patient, even if it's something as simple as, Hey, you know what? I want you to walk five minutes every day for me. Um, come up with very specific, very concrete, uh, recommendations, um, and then, and then empower the patient to then make those changes as well. So we know that we know that behavior change is really, really hard. Um, and little tiny changes over time are what are going to add up. So rather than having patients saying, Hey, you have to exercise 150 minutes a week. You have to only eat broccoli. Um, you know, no one's going to do that. So putting, putting our, our, our recommendations in a realistic framework, which is unique to that patient. And so I always tell people, um, you know, what, what is reasonable for you? Um, you know, sometimes my patients who are, you know, long distance truck drivers, they don't have access to a refrigerator. Um, and so we, we talk more about making healthier choices at, at, you know, fast food places, uh, versus, versus, you know, packing their lunch uh, as well. So I think part of the key here when it comes to lifestyle medicine is you have to sort of meet the patient where, the, well, you have to actually meet the patient where they are and, and make small recommendations consistently over time. And that's what's really going to empower them to make those changes as well, too. Long answer. I'm sorry. No, that's great. I, I love it. I wish we could talk more uh, about it. I kind of want to transition to um, something that you kind of uh, alluded to earlier is just uh, 
the way people or the way healthcare gets paid for, the way um, patients' uh, healthcare gets paid for, and the way that um, physicians get reimbursed. Uh, you work for Kaiser Permanente, is that right? Correct. Yep. Well, actually, I'm I'm actually a partner in Southern California Permanente Medical Group, which is actually a partner with Kaiser Health Plan. But that's a whole other con- okay, conversation. Yeah, that's over my head right now. Um, <laughs> but um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the um, uh, big medicine and how that plays a role into, um, I guess, your world? Because you're you're uh, working in it and living in it. Um, maybe contra- kind of contrast what working for a big uh, corporate health group w- looks like versus uh, maybe a small solo independent practitioner or just a smaller uh, independent group. Um, what does that look like, especially in, in the primary care setting? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I haven't heard that term, but big, big medicine. I haven't heard that term before, but I figured it was coming. So, um, <laughs> You know, I think part of the issue here is there are just so many derivations of how care is delivered across different states and different settings as well, too. Um, I, you know, I anyone who's seen any of my social media accounts know I'm I am so happy. I'm so proud to to be a permanent physician and to to be a partner within the Southern California Permanent Day Medical Group. Um, I think my situation is probably unique compared to some other people who are actually employed. Cause I'm actually, like I said, I'm actually not employed. Got I'm it. a partner in a very, very large multi-specialty group it consists of about 9,000 physicians in Southern California. Wow. And so my, my situation is unique because I'm, I'm basically salaried. So whether I prescribe a hundred medications and order a hundred MRIs, or I prescribe no medications and counsel people till I'm blue in the face, I take home the same income. Okay. And I think um, we know that sort of that the the value based care is coming. It's it's the cats probably are out of the bag in in that respect too. Um, so I really think that the way our system is set up within Kaiser Permanente is to incentivize health and incentivize prevention. Because um, again, we are we are a capitated system. We 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 don't make money when patients are in the hospital. We lose money when patients are in the hospital. And so our financial incentive is set up to keep people healthy, keep people out of the hospital. And so we're far more willing to, as an organization, to invest upfront um, to, to prevent that, you know, foot ulcer or, or diabetes or you name it, rather than it is to treat it once it's already downstream. And I think that's one of the biggest problems of the way our healthcare system is set up is we are historically, again, it's changing, but historically we are incentivized to treat disease, not prevent disease. Um, and I think those of us in family medicine, those of us in primary care, we really have a passion for preventing uh, illness and preventing disease. I like to joke, we don't have a health care system in this country. We have a disease care system in this country, and we are in need of a health prevention <laughs> care system. Um, and I think Kaiser Permanente has, has figured out a very unique formula there. Um, it's obviously, you know, a highly regulated environment as well, too, and it's different in, in different states. Um, I think part of the goal and what I'd always tell all anyone listening you know, out there who's, who's interested in primary care who, or who does primary care is that we need to continue to, to fight and to advocate for the absolute critical importance of the work that we do as primary care to prevent illness, making sure that we are getting enough people interested in going into primary care and we are compensated, quite frankly, appropriately to make sure that we have enough of a workforce to truly you know, prevent this skyrocketing healthcare costs 
um, in, in this country as well, too. But I, I'll try not to get on my soapbox too much about that. No, that was a perfect soapbox and a perfect kind of transition into talking about leadership in this in this world of primary care medicine. Um, I know that you're very involved locally, regionally, nationally. Um, at least I know uh, about your involvement in the AAFP because I'm an avid uh, Instagram follower of you. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about activism, public policy, leadership, and, and kind of what uh, you're talking about when you're talking about uh, the future of primary care medicine and recruiting more people to be involved? Absolutely. The, we are all leaders in medicine whether we like it or not. As a physician, we are in a leadership position. Um, and it's a matter of, of advocating for ourselves, for our patients and for our specialty as well. Um, the, people who make, who, the people who show up at the meetings make the decisions. Um, and, and those people who are at the table, so to speak, are the ones who, who make the decisions. The, the kind of the, the joke or the adage, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. Um, and so we need to make sure we show up and we, need, we, we are at the table um, as family physicians and as primary care physicians to make sure that we are not on the menu, one, and two, that we have our, our, our place at the table. Um, I, I think of primary care as sort of the hub of the wheel, right? There's all these moving parts and, you know, you absolutely need the tire, you need the spokes without uh, a lot of our subspecialty colleagues, we, could, we cannot provide the care that patients need, but without the hub, everything falls apart. I mean, there's no there's no central piece kind of connecting all together. And I see primary care is really the hub of that wheel. And we need to advocate for ourselves to 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 really be valued as, as that hub and to understand the importance there. I think um, uh, when it comes, you know, 80 percent of, of life is showing up. And if you show up to the meetings, if you go to your local county medical society, if you get involved in um, your you know, uh, county or state chapter of the AFP, if you get involved nationally uh, at the American Academy of Family Medicine, family physicians, um, you can help kind of get connected with these amazing thought leaders and really build build the momentum and learn tools that you can then bring home with you to your, you know, your clinic or your hospital system to to bring bring forward that energy too and i've made amazing friendships with amazing family physicians all over the country um and i'm, I'm involved the california medical association as well too and made relationships with with other subspecialists who sort of get primary care and get the importance of primary care as well too i don't think um uh i i think we sort of have a, a little bit of this kind of us versus them mentality sometimes mm -hmm. um but if we are truly if our goal is to improve the the health of our patients and our communities and our population in this country, we really need to be much more collaborative in terms of how we think about um, care and care delivery and not just sort of fighting one another for a, 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 a finite piece of the pie, so to speak. Um, it is it is finite. Um, there's no question about that. But also, also at the same time, if we're sort of, you know, people are pointing fingers and saying, oh, no, you, you know, you do too many surgeries or, or you don't do enough surgeries. We're never going to get anywhere ultimately as, as a nation. And so I think it's really important that all of us as family medicine, as primary care physicians, we sort of learn about how we can advocate. We can go to these meetings to advocate and we can connect with amazing mentors as well that we can really learn from and grow from. And so we kind of collectively all work together and, uh, and attack the problem from, from multiple angles all at the same time. Yeah. Well, we got about four minutes here before uh, we both turn into a pumpkin. Um, so uh, I just kind of wanted to ask a little bit more um, about that kind of drilling down on what does that look like? What, what is actually advocating 
for the primary care profession or for patients um, as a primary care physician? What, what does it look like to advocate? What are, what are you actually talking about? Um, can you give a couple specifics and then we can, uh, we can bring it on home from there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many ways, um, you know, and you can think about it for the individual patient. Um, I had a, a patient who um, really needed home care services. Uh, they had a m- multiple medical problems and their family really couldn't take care of them. And I kept getting pushback. And I just I, I, I kept calling. I kept picking up the phone. I kept talking to anyone who would listen to me and ultimately got this patient some some home home in home support services. And so it can be as simple as advocating for one patient at mm-hmm. a time and, and just being persistent until you get that that prior authorization approved or until you get that uh, you know that referral uh or, or whatever it is so that that's kind of that one piece the the second piece is just sort of for your colleagues in your in your clinic as well too if there's something that's not working if there's a if there's a workflow which you you find problematic you go and you talk to your supervisor you go talk to the physician or the, whoever the administrator is and say hey you know this this system is not working can we can we change it in this way uh can we evolve or can we reevaluate this too and i think sometimes just bringing up those issues and not just sort of suffering in silence can be can be beneficial and then you know and then you kind of zoom that out too you you can meet with your local um elected officials you can meet with your state officials as well too the first time i ever went to sacramento and i advocated for uh, for, for family medicine, the, the well-meaning elected official didn't know the difference between a podiatrist and a pediatrician. They actually use the terms interchangeably. <laughs> um, and so a lot of our, a lot of our laws, our rules, uh, are dictated by our, our elected officials who know very little about medicine, if anything at all. And they know absolutely nothing about what it's like to actually practice medicine. And so literally just showing up and telling them, sharing our stories, sharing our patient stories, giving them our experience um, can be so valuable when it comes to helping empower them and educating them to make laws which actually are beneficial and not just obstructionist, for lack of a better term. Um, I I can go on and on, but those are kind of three sort of specific ways you can kind of quote unquote advocate. There's, there's a million ways to do it though. Okay. I like it. You took it very uh, from the micro to the macro. Uh, so that, that that was all uh, really uh, poignant, and uh, I think your point is taken that it doesn't have to be um, advocating in front of Congress um, to be making an impact. It, you can be making an impact very locally, even within your own um, you know clinic or with one patient, or you can be taking that to uh, the Capitol building and and actually uh, influencing policy. So. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It was really great to talk to you about your your life and your work. And um, do you have any uh, just last word to go out on or advice for students and residents who are, um, you know, struggling through it all, but uh, but making it happen? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm so thank you so much for for joining for letting me join you and and uh, getting on my soapbox a little bit here and there. Um, I I always tell people that you know I am exceptionally proud to be a family medicine physician. And I, I think we are so uniquely positioned that we can literally go into any community in the nation, in the world, and we can fill whatever healthcare need that community has. We are sort of the the pluripotent stem cells of healthcare, if you will. Love it. Um, and I, I've been hearing by so many people saying that, you know, oh, I, I want to do family medicine, but it's too hard, and or it's 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 you're not paid enough, or or people say I'm too smart, and and to the residents and the students in particular, don't ever for the second let someone say you are not smart, or sorry, you, that you are too smart to go into family medicine, because mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe if you can't learn more than one organ system, maybe family medicine is not for you, uh, mm -hmm. is how I respond back to them. Um, so I'm, I'm so proud to be a family medicine physician. I, I think that we are the, the solution to our healthcare crisis, quite frankly, we have in this country from a, from a policy point of view, from a, um, uh, individual point of view too. So, so, you know, go family medicine, go primary care. And, and I, we need, we need to encourage more people out there. So, so spread some, some of that passion for everyone that you see on a daily basis. yeah we did it another great primary care podcast interview i thank you all for listening if you have any topics or specific people that you'd like to see on the show or hear on the show please send them to the primary care podcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to Primary Care Podcast uh, on Instagram. I guess I, I should say at Primary Care Podcast to be cool, which is actually how I uh, hooked up with Dr. McDonald. Uh, we met through Instagram. So what do you know? The boomers won't like to hear it, but uh, Gen Z loves it. So keep on keeping on. Enjoy. And uh, thanks for listening. See you next time. That just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be Learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now it's showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know the universe was my universe but I left to pursue the search of love but sometimes it hurt along the way if there's anything I've learned create a garden plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames play the game and wonder am I the hunted or the hunter when I was younger I met God and I hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going and gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body
people and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversations and information exchanged and contained in this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.